<clears throat> All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for giving us this truth in time. Thank you for affording us with your patience, your mercy, your grace, and of course your love. Father, thank you for giving us the ability to appreciate such things in time, Father. We pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that can't be with us. For one reason or another, Father, we pray that you comfort them, that you return them to the fold in your good timing. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope. Most of all, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt against us and to make a time like this a time to rejoice. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 15 of Proverbs 17, Wisdom. It's incredible how far we've come uh, in this series uh, and how long we've still got to go. Um, for me personally, it's been fantastic. I've loved every moment of it. Um, and I like the way that he's opening all of this up to us, that we're just halfway through verse 4 of an entire chapter, and we're on part, what, 15? It goes to show how much and how impregnated the Bible is with truth. All right, you got to get here on time, my friend. That's all right, second time. Just uh, try to get here on time next time. Appreciate it. So I've really enjoyed... Um, the 15 parts, let's put it that way. And it's just been, I think the point the Spirit's making here is that, and I hope it's encouraging because of what the Spirit said for all of you in terms of reading your own Bible, um, you know, doing this very thing and reading it, uh, I guess not just to read it, but for context, for purpose, and as the blog, I think it was the blog, right? The blog was about taking in too much data and information and the detriment that that can have on your soul. Just put this into perspective, okay? 15 messages is 15 hours, okay? Three and a half verses, okay? Three and a half verses in this. I mean, that's like this much of one page in this book. There is way more than enough in this one book to keep us busy for our entire lives, for several lifetimes. More than enough data to keep us occupied. Feeling you need a little stimulation? Pick up your Bible. 
Shut off the video game. Shut off the television. Close that disgusting book. You know, the one you got on the news rack at CVS or whatever. Or, you know, drop all the, the garbage into your soul. When there's that much data to cling to, to absorb, to digest, um, need we go anywhere else? Honestly. With that said, the final say on the opening aspects of this past week's messages up here in the board. We did a lot of work on this, you know. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Be careful what you treasure then. If we treasure a counterfeit, we suffer for it. That's what the Spirit's been saying. If we treasure a counterfeit, we suffer for it. So be careful what you treasure. We pondered one final counterfeit, quote, treasure on Thursday, worth reiterating here, namely what I like to call self, all capitals, self-esteem. That seems to be everyone's treasure, at least in America. I need more self-esteem. I need more self-this, self-confidence, self-assurance, self-you-fill-in-the-blank. Everything's self. Do you understand? Everything's self. And it starts with self-esteem. Isn't that what the world teaches us? Take in more data. Not here. God forbid you go to your Bible to find that thing. No, no, no. You've got to put that down because this talks about Christ, you see. The center of the universe in this book is Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. But the, the world will tell you, no, no, no. The center of the world, you ready? Is you. You're the center of the world. Don't ever grow up. Be like, uh, you know, be like you were when you were one year old, you know, completely egocentric. The world revolves around you. Keep that. Hold it. Find your self-esteem in that perspective. So we pondered this counterfeit treasure called self-esteem. And this is an interesting topic because the world fills our heads with counterfeits daily. Here are a few ways the world fills our heads up here on the board. And I'm just, you know, you know dump, just dumping what the Spirit gave me, right? This is not an exhaustive list. But these are sources of counterfeit <clears throat> self-esteem. Your education, your work, your income. You know, I'm smart. I have a good job. I make a lot of money. Your appearance or your dress. Did I say more? Your kindness. This, now, this is where it gets slippery because, you know, a lot of people go, well, I don't have a whole lot of the first two, so what I'll do is I'll really bulk up on kindness and, and niceness and sweetness. I'll be just the sweetest little thing. Right? And everybody will know me as the sweet one. 
Who's that about? Honestly, who's that about? Oh, whoa, Don, going crazy. You're just on fire today. Right? Self. How about your reputation, your accomplishments, your successes? And I put them in quotes. I put success in quotes because most of the time it's by world standards that you say that you're enjoying success. And then lastly, of course, can't forget maybe the most famous, but the most misunderstood often, your religion. What are you? I'm a Christian. Right? You got the, the, the shirts and the, you know, the, the, the earrings and the, I don't know. You go to the church with a big steeple and the whatever. You know, I'm a Christian. My church is the big one on the corner. Who's that about? Honestly, who's that about? So you see, those are sources of counterfeit self-esteem. You esteem yourself because of these things. And what did all of these examples have in common? They all began with your. As in, let's place the emphasis on you instead of Christ. That's what they had in common. Here's our proper perspective up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, speaking of other apostles, Though it was not I. Some of you, no, 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 I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Nobody works harder than me. I work, you know, I do this. Who gave you that ability? Who gave you that time? Who didn't put you in another country where you didn't even, maybe wouldn't have a job? Or maybe you'd have to work 14 or 15 or 16 hours a day instead of your piddly little 8 to 10 that you're so proud of. Oh, you're just so proud. I work so hard. Do you really, though? Next time I go on a missionary trip, I'll take you with me. And we'll sh- I'll show you some people that work twice as hard as you and make not even one-tenth of what you make, maybe. And you're back here complaining and bragging about how hard you work and how worthy you are of those wages. You lucked out, kid. God blessed you out before you were even born and said, I'm going to put them in America. And you know what that proved? It proved that you couldn't handle it. It proved that you failed the prosperity test. It proved that you made it about you. You get it? (sighs) Happy Sunday morning. Just so you know, I was back there preparing. I'm like, man. A few months back, we were like, yeah, it looked all encouraging, right? Then it just... I don't know, you guys, you guys must get cocky or something. You must, you must get, like, puffed up. I don't know. I don't know. I wish you'd straighten up, though, so I could teach some happy messages. <laughs> Melissa, straighten up. I know it's you. I mean, you should nap up, maybe. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The point is, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
Let's take a moment now to survey some Holy Scripture on this topic of self-esteem and the real reason we believers ought to have any at all. Is there anything, all right, stop the presses, anything wrong with the most generic definition of, you know, self-esteem, like, you know, having a certain love for self, this kind of a thing? Not really, as long as it's based in Christ. And don't play that little game like, oh, it's definitely based in Christ, you know. No, it's not. Not when you're doing stuff like that. It's not about you. As soon as it becomes about you, you've missed. That's the whole point. Go to Romans 12, verse 3. Romans 12, verse 3. So I'm not trying to destroy anybody in that sense. Do you understand? That's not the message. The message is that the world teaches you to focus on self. Think of that list I put up on the board. Making those things about you as if you've earned them or you deserve them or even uglier, right? You're entitled to them. Ugh. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do not think higher or more highly than, of yourself than you ought to think. That's Romans 12, 3. How about 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6? Go there. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. This is going to give us scriptural evidence of what God the Holy Spirit wants you to understand about the topic of self-esteem. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Do you understand? Paul didn't say, look at me, I'm the greatest evangelist of all time. He said, I planted, Apollos, another guy watered, but God gave the growth. God's responsible for saving. God's responsible for sanctifying. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. ha. <laughs> But only God who gives the growth. Do you get it? Only God who gives the growth. How about 1 Corinthians 4, 7? Love this verse right here. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Next time you forget where you came from, read 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, from God. What is it that you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What are you boasting about? Honestly. You got it from God, that means you're not even responsible for it. So what are you boasting about? Why are you boasting as if you didn't receive it from God? Hmm. How about 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. The, as you can see, the Bible, is, there's, there's no shortage of keeping us in check in the Bible. Keeping our perspectives right. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such is the confidence, in other words, you know, self-confidence, self-esteem, that we have how? Through Christ toward God. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. 
Where do we, in other words, where, what's the root system of our confidence, our self-confidence, our self-esteem? What's the root system? Through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is what? From God. Our sufficiency is from God. How about Philippians 1, verse 6? Go there. Philippians 1, 6. Philippians 1, verse 6. These might be some of the most freeing passages for a lot of you. Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, not you, not you, like Paul said, you know, have you been born of the Spirit, now you're going to perfect yourself by the flesh? Remember that in Galatians? This is in contrary to that, in contrast to that. And I am aware of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who's doing all the work? He is. Who's sanctifying you? He is. How about Philippians 2.13? Go there. Philippians 2.13 Who's doing all the work? Oh, but I'm a self-made person. But are you really? Maybe you're still an unbeliever. I don't know. Because that's exactly how an unbeliever has to think. Because that's as good as it gets for an unbeliever. Hmm. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you. Any questions? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, the key principle is up here on the board already. Really, it's captured by Paul. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yeah. He admits he worked hard, right? It's not like some of us aren't sweating. Sometimes up here, if the AC's not doing so well, Sometimes I'm up here sweating. This is hard work. It's labor. It's real. It took me hours to prepare this message for you. I have like, what, 18 pages of notes? Anybody want to write my messages for me? Everybody's like, 18 pages? Yeah, 18 pages. And a blog, and another 18, you know, on Thursday, and so on and so forth, and studying in between, reading my body. You know, you know this is like work. Do you understand? But you know what? I've got eyes to read. I'm grateful. I've got time to spend on it. I'm grateful. I've got a lot of things that are requisite gifts to even pull this off. And I'm grateful. I am what I am by the grace of God. Do you understand? And you're no different. All right, back to the instigating principle of counterfeit self-esteem. Here's our list up here on the board. Sources of counterfeit self-esteem. I just want to read them over with you again. Your education, work, or income. I'm looking out. I mean, I know, you pretty, I know all of you pretty well by now. Several of you suffer from that severely. Your appearance or dress. This is probably on the downslope in this congregation, but it, eh, it's still there. Your kindness, niceness, sweetness, I still see it. 
Your reputation, accomplishments, success, it's still there. And your religion, I can still smell it like the sewer. Some of you are dragging old religion with you into this room. And I'm not condemning you, I'm just saying, trust you. Trust me when I say, I smell it in the, in a, in the figurative sense. Do you understand what I'm getting at? It doesn't take very long to get a whiff of that religion. We noted one particular case of this counterfeit treasure, this issue with self-esteem. And we noted it with King David, of all people, right? Line number four, his reputation, his accomplishments, his success. Um, he was impressed with all that God had accomplished through him in terms of you know, the size and strength of his army, even. In other words, to complete the picture here, David, the humble one, the one after God's own heart, according to Acts 13.22, was tempted and failed miserably. My point is, if it can happen to David, it can most definitely happen to you. That's the point. If it can happen to him, it can certainly happen to any one of us, and it does. Amen? Yeah, a little quiet on that amen, but that's cool. Yeah. But here's what we want to do. Before we allow Holy Scripture to reveal David's failure, I want to grab some context first, right? Go to 1 Samuel 17, 1. 1 Samuel 17, 1. It is a familiar story, but there's nothing like reading the Bible. First Samuel 17, verse 1. Just for context, we're going to see, you know, this is going to be a story of where he came from. You know, obviously, what's the spirit developing in all of us? Don't forget where you came from. You see? At salvation, most of you are like, oh, I'm just so humbled by salvation. I'm just so grateful for all that you've done. Now look at you. I can't even get some of you to read your Bibles or the blog or get here on time because of your so-called so-busy life. When I got hundreds of people, several per week, every single week, writing me from overseas, I got hardly any food and water, but I've got an orphanage of 30. Can you help? I just want Bibles. I don't want much. How do, I get your, how do I get your publications over here in India or Pakistan or Kenya or Philippines? How do, I, how do I do this stuff? I'm working tooth and nail. I'm fighting, scratching, biting everything I can for these kids. So just keep that in mind. 1 Samuel 17, 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at uh, Sokar, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokar and Azekar and Ephes Damim. Verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, 
and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Just so you know, that's nine feet, nine inches tall. Right? Nine feet, nine inches tall. Because a cubit's a foot and a half. Verse 5. So that's a big person, right? That'd be significantly taller than I am right now. Like, and I'm up on like two feet, right? And I'm like 6'5", so that puts me... (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa! (laughs) Anyways. That's tall, okay? That would be almost to the ceiling. I wish Ott was here, because he could probably tell me the exact height of that beam. So Goliath, nine feet, nine inches tall. And don't forget, people were a lot shorter back then, too. So he would have been enormous. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Do you know what that is? That's those little chained-up things, like you ever see them? Like when a soldier would run back, he's all like chained, you know what I'm saying? And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's roughly 78 pounds. Just for the chain mail, just for that chain mail. You understand? Almost 80 pounds of metal, linked metal. Okay? He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, about 78 pounds. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear, okay? The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. A weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 15 pounds. And just to give you some context, an Olympic men's shot put is only 16 pounds. So the head of his spear, the thing he chucked, was roughly the, the weight of an a, a, a Olympic men's shot put. Right? And the strongest men in history only throw that thing for like a little over 80 feet, I think. is the world record of all time. 80 feet. Up here on the board, I'll give you a, a, a picture. Hopefully you can see it. Can you see the guy? See the man? And see the tip of the spear up there? And then you, see, you can see Goliath's shadow. See the top of his head at the top of that thing? And that's a guy today, probably a six-footer or something like that, you know, normal-sized dude, right? Look at the size of that spear. Yeah, you'd have to be a monster to even wield that thing. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, or are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Cocky, huh? If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. 
When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of Apathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Skip forward to verse 16. Verse 16. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. So now you have your context building. Go to verse 22. Verse 22. <clears throat> and David, just perchance, so to speak, David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Remember, David was just a shepherd. He was the youngest of all of them. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So this is the turning point. David heard him. Everybody else heard him up until that point, and they were afraid. David hears him, and something else triggers. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So I'm getting, a, I'm getting a sense that little old David here is a little PO'd, right? Who are you to defy the armies of the living God? The funny thing is, is why is he the one saying it? Why is the youngest one in the, in the group saying it? Go to verse 32. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, <clears throat> Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. <laughs> and Saul said to David, Saul was king at the time, right? You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. <laughs> right? Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw. You see what's going on right now? Did David say, I'm such a great warrior? Most of us would be like, da -da -da -da. Right? King of the hill, oh, look at that, I just killed him. We'd be hearing about this bear story until we were 100, right? How grandpa killed the bear, right? Oh, and the lion, right? We'd be hearing about this forever, and it'd be all about them. And we'd make you know, a hero out of them. Oh, that's grandpa, and there's the head of the bear that he killed with his bare hands. And grandpa was the, the most macho, coolest man of all time. He's, he's such a... Right? Right, guys? Huh? I mean, I would never do that, but you guys probably would. I'd be like, nope. Probably run from the bear. Amen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're like, it's only one sheep. <laughs> What's one sheep? 
Dad will never know. <laughs> Verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And he took, oh, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, I am a dog that you come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, little G's. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day of the, to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Think of verse 47. There was no sword in the hand of David. The Lord doesn't need swords. So, that gives us the context of David's constitution. Fair enough? I hope you can see his utter awe and respect for the Lord. And this really is a result of his unerring humility, at least at the time. Now, fast forward some years to when David was already king, had replaced Saul, by the, time, uh, or by the same grace of God that delivered him from the hand of the great warrior uh, Goliath, David had become quite famous and revered by many due to the conquests that God had given unto him. So fast forward, you know, from the young shepherd boy to King David. And like most men, as we'll see, David fails the test. Once he got to the top of the heap, he, at least for a moment, for a time, forgot how he got there. He forgot how he got there. Do you remember all those verses we started off this message with? I am what I am by the grace of God, and so on, and so forth, and so on. 
Some of you hearing my voice right now need to take pause and hear it. Up here on the board, remember how you got here. Once you think you've so-called, quote, arrived, be careful you don't forget where you came from or who, who exactly sanctified you. David forgot and ultimately suffered dearly. You might just be miserable because of this one reason. You've become familiar, entitled, arrogant. Familiar, entitled, arrogant. All right, now that we have the background for the person of David, let's fast forward to his failure. You go to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Should be right around the corner. First Chronicles 21, verse 1. So we got the context of little old David, the shepherd boy, who's apparently fearless. And you see that relationship between trust in the Lord and what most people would call courage. Right? All I, I've taught you this in the past. I define courage as applied faith. That's about, as, that's about it. Courage is really applied faith. 1 Corinthians 21.1, Then Satan stood against Israel and cited David to number Israel. What happened? David's pride overcame his humility. God did not want him to do this thing. It was not, it was not necessary to count how many people he had in his army. In other words, who was it about, David? Verse 2, So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. Huh. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? In other words, what are you doing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab, <clears throat> so Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. Jump forward to verse 7. Verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And so David starts figuring it out. Verse 8. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly, and that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very Foolishly, And then in context, God gives him three options for punishment. Go to verse 13. We're just jumping through because we went through this on Thursday. Verse 13. The ultimate issue here is what David says next. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. We can just stop right there. I am in great distress. What started off as an arrogant thing ended up with David being in great distress. David had forgotten that he was, you know, so-called great because by the grace of God alone he was made that way. He forgot. It was like a different person. You ever noticed that about yourself? You ever looked in the mirror and go, who am I right now? This is, this is gross. Like, I do all the time. I look in the mirror and I say, what happened to you? Like, why are you thinking like this? Why are you doing Why are you making these decisions? You're ugly right now. You were, 
you are, and I'm saying this figuratively, right? So stop agreeing, right? You're ugly. You're ugly right now in the eyes of God, right? Um, you, were, you were doing better before. Anybody else? Just me? I'm the only one who fails? Yeah, we all do this thing. We forget where we came from. David opted for a counterfeit self-esteem, getting puffed up at the size of his army, an army that God assembled under him. Did he not say in 1 Samuel, right, the army of the Lord, the living God? This is the Lord's army. <laughs> right? Did he not say it was the Lord who delivered me from the bear and the lion? Well, it's the same person, right? What's going on? Now he wants to number his army. He's like, you know... <laughs> Like a notch, right? Look at how many people I've, I've, you know, killed. You know, boom, boom, boom. Look at all the, look at all the generals I have under my command. Some of you aren't that way. For some of you, it's like, you know, pick your spot in that list. Look at my bank account. Look at my job. Look at my looks. Look at my reputation. Look at my success. Look at my everything. And like I said last week, I think. It's not whether you have it or not. Because if you have those things, you're puffed up. If you don't, you're downtrodden. Both are errors of the same proportion. The problem is the system of thinking. Those things shouldn't matter. As soon as they do, well, guess what? You're going to fall on one side or the other, right? On this side, you're puffed up and arrogant. On that side, you're bitter and jealous because you don't have it. Either way, that system of thinking leads you down a counterfeit path for happiness and peace and contentment, and you keep going with Holy Scripture. And the next thing you know, that builds up and snowballs into now your very self-esteem is based on the substance of all that ugliness. That's what David was doing. Look at me. I'm king. I have a huge army. I'm undefeated. You're undefeated because God made you that way. Some of you are like, I'm undefeated in business. You're undefeated because God ordained it, my friend. And if you're not, God didn't ordain it. So don't be bitter. And don't kick open doors and take the bait from the kingdom of darkness. We were talking about that. Was it during the leadership meeting, maybe? I can't remember. I've had a lot of conversations lately where very often God really does intend to bless us out with something down the line when we have capacity for it. And the king of darkness always beats, us, beats him to the punch. He always perverts it. He says, don't wait on God. I'll give it to you now. Don't wait on God. Even though you know that's probably the right thing to do, I'll give it to you right now. I'll lay it on your lap. And we'll both call it, we'll both call it a blessing from God. But I know and God knows and you know deep down that it's not because you kicked the door open. We were talking about, I forget, was that you, DJ? DJ's like, I don't know. He's like, maybe it was. He's like, probably was because I'm awesome. <laughs> huh? See that? He's like, yeah, it probably was me. Think about it this way. We all, in our own ways, suffer the same issues. So this isn't about condemnation. It's not about a big beatdown on a Sunday morning. It's about being sanctified and delivered from that system of thinking. 
It's not whether you're here or there. It's what the system of thinking is. Because today you're here and tomorrow you're there. Amen? Mm -mm. We all suffer. We pray, we learn, we grow. We pray some more. We learn some more. We grow some more. We abide in the likes of Paul who wrote, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14. We strive, we stretch, and we plead with God to sanctify us. Please, Lord, increase my faith. Sanctify me. And then, bam, we surmise our arrival. And what do we do? And what do we do? We surmise our arrival. And what do we do? We say, wow, look at how awesome I am. Please, Lord, deliver me. Please, Lord, can I have this blessing? Please, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord. And what do we do? Whoa, look at me. I worked really hard to get here. And I know God was there to help me along the way, but the world and my flesh are pointing to me, giving me credit, not God. So I guess I'm worthy of some of that. Right? That's how it starts. Okay, God, you get 98%, I'll just get two. Right? Okay, God, a couple of, you know, fast forward a couple of months. Okay, God, you get, you get 95, I get five. Year later, you get... 80, I get 20. You follow what I'm getting at? That's how it works. And the world's right there going, is 20 enough? You need more. You need more self-esteem based on what you think of who you are by yourself. Go number your army. Go, go open up your, uh, your bank account online and go look at the numbers. Right? Open up the shade, look in your driveway. Ooh, look at that nice new car. Go look in the mirror. Look at whatever it is you look at when you look in the mirror. And be fascinated with yourself. Right? Call up your friends. Am I really a special? Am I, am I a cool guy? Guys don't talk like this. If they do, I'm not answering. Dude, you got the wrong number for a couple of reasons. First, I'm not going to talk to you like that. Second, I'm going to give you Holy Scripture, and you're not going to like what I have to say. And they go, oh, wrong number. The rest, they say, is history. When you start going on that road. Again, the point on the board, what's the moral of the story here with King David? Remember how you got here. Once you think you've arrived, be careful. You don't forget where you came from or who exactly sanctified you. David forgot and ultimately suffered dearly. You might just be miserable because of this one reason. You've become familiar, entitled, and arrogant. Now, I want to reflect on this with you because he's probably got your attention, and I'm glad. He's probably got your attention. You're probably like, all right, I give uncle, uncle, you know. I'm at, I'm at least one of those line items that was on the board. I'm, my self-esteem is based in at least one of those things. If we're honest, it's probably the majority of them. Misery is awful, 
but it's actually an easy fix in most instances. It's actually an easy fix. That's the beauty of it. Easy in the sense that it's really not that difficult to even identify. In all fairness, it might be, quote, hard in the sense that you've got a lot of momentum behind that train, right? The building up, you know, the 2%, 5%, 20%. You got all the momentum going in on that train, and you need to put the brakes on for some time before you can turn that thing around. That's not what I'm talking about. It's an easy fix once you realize what the issue is. Excuse me, what the issue is. Are you ready for it? Up here on the board. The source of your misery. You ready? You want the fruit of righteousness, but you refuse to actually be righteous. That's the problem. I think I gave you two reasons last time, right? You pray for the wrong stuff. You pray for relief rather than deliverance. And you lack faith that God's economy has a greater ROI than the world's economy. And so you, you're stuck. You get stuck in this rut because you're unwilling. You, you're, you're that person that always takes the bait, right? The, the kingdom of darkness, listen, listen up. The kingdom of darkness specializes in counterfeits. Specializes in counterfeits. And as soon as it realizes you want a certain something, It'll slip the counterfeit in before the real thing. It'll slip the counterfeit blessing in before the real blessing. It'll beat God to the punch. Do you understand? The source of your misery. You want the fruit of righteousness. You want those blessings. Don't, who doesn't want blessings, right? Everybody wants blessings. But we refuse to actually be righteous. What does the Bible say in Matthew 6.33? Seek all these things first. Or seek the kingdom of God first and all these things will be added unto you. Seek Him first. And then all these things will be added to you. The world says, I'll give... You don't, I don't want you to seek Him first. I'll just give you these things now. So, if you haven't been seeking him, and you get a so-called blessing placed on your lap, what might you conclude? If you're out of joint, maligned, disoriented, from the holy God of the universe, your creator, your Lord, the one whose timing is perfect, if you're out of sync with him, and you get some blessing... I don't know what, relationships, money, I don't know what it is, whatever it is in your life, right? You get some blessing handed on your lap. What might you conclude? That's between you and the Lord. Right? But the Bible says you reap what you sow. I'm just saying. Again, the source of your misery... You want the fruit of righteousness, but you refuse to actually be righteous. Go to James 1, verse 2. He wrote uh, a lot about this thing. James 1, verse 2. He was dealing with a bunch of religious people. People that would um, complain, murmur, gripe, um, you know, wondering why their religion 
wasn't satisfying them. They didn't really want to take the yoke. Does that make sense? The yoke would imply that you do wait on God's timing. You understand what I'm saying? They don't really want to take the yoke on. They just wanted the goodies back. They don't want to be righteous. They just want the fruit of righteousness. So James had to deal with this, right? Because he had a bunch of religious people that were probably going to church on their Sunday best, putting on a good show and saying, see, I deserve this thing. I sought the kingdom of heaven. Now all these things should be added unto me. And God says, but I see the heart. Seems like a counterfeit. Anyways, James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He might get some counterfeits, but it's not from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. That's the end game of counterfeits. Do you understand? They have no eternal value. Eventually they fail you. That's how Satan is. Satan, think, Satan I hate to be gross on a Sunday morning, but Satan's a lot more like a one-night stand. He's a grotesque seducer who's gone in the morning. Thanks, babe. I'm out of here. Well, that was pretty gross. Well, you promised me all these things. You told me you loved me on the, in the club. Right? I thought we were soulmates in the, in the span of, I don't know, you picked some short period of time. thought you cared about me. Thought I was special. Out! That's Satan. All promise, no follow through. That's what a counterfeit is. If I gave you a $100 bill right now, it looked a lot like the real thing, you'd be like, booyah! Right? And then you go to spend it, and they're like, yeah, this is junk. You'd be like, oh. Right? For the half an hour it took you to drive to Capitol Grill or whatever, wherever you go to spend it, you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to Capitol Grill. Right? You're going to spend it. Oh, boom. Right? I give you a nice car. I give you my car out there. It's not going to happen. I give you my car out there. You drive down the road and the engine seizes. Now it costs you more to bring it to the dump. <laughs> Get traded in for scrap metal. Right? That's a counterfeit. It's not from the Lord. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of, when he has stood the test, in other words, in God's timing, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. This is that gross language. Think of that seductive, lured and enticed by his own, what? By someone else? Can you blame it on the seducer? No. Who's at the bar, you scuzz? Oh, sorry. Sorry. You're the one who showed up, though, didn't you? Your desire. Oh, I, I was dragged there. No. No, you weren't. You're there on your own accord because you want to be there because you're a sinner. It was your own desire, so stop pointing fingers. You're miserable. Is it still up there? Yeah. The source of your misery, right? You, you want the fruit of righteousness, but you refuse to actually be righteous. It's your own desire. That's the battleground, right? It's your sinfulness. It's your flesh. Nobody can make you do anything. So you can't point fingers either. Okay, verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And here's the point. But be doers of the word, not hearers who only, or not hearers only deceiving yourselves. That's the point on the board. This is really good advice. Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one excuse me, who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Not just somebody who comes on a Sunday morning and hears stuff and goes, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And then walks back and forgets what they even look like. Right now, the Spirit, that's why this morning's tough, right? I get it. And trust you me, I spend a lot more time with that mirror in my face as I'm preparing than one hour that you guys have. Right now, he's holding up a mirror. And the only reason it's hard, the only reason your soul has been a little twitchy, a little uncomfortable, a little too ready to blame the ball guy, is because you're a sinner. It's because you are doing something in your life right now that you can relate to. And God the Holy Spirit is saying, my friend, this is you. It's not, it's not the person to your left or to your right. I'm talking to you directly, right? So that's why you can never say it's me. I'm not talking to anyone here directly. Don't ever make that mistake, please, okay? I'm not talking to you. This is between you and God the Holy Spirit. Okay? Look at verse 26. <clears throat> if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, we're just developing that point on the board, the source of your misery. You want the fruit of righteousness, but you refuse to actually be righteous. If you're stained with the world, that would be what we would call unrighteousness. If you're unstained, that would be what we would call righteous. Don't just hear what's coming from this pulpit. Be a doer of it. Don't just read your Bible. Do it. We believers can never really truly be happy if we stand opposed to God, especially once we know better. Especially once we know better. Let's go right around the corner where James is putting finishing touches on this letter. Go to James 4.16. James 4.16. Listen, I know these are hard messages, trust me, but they're really good for you. You need to hear them, and he's talking to you personally. So don't try to, like, you know, sidestep it or squirm away, because that's weak. James 4.16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, right? The context here, I believe, is they were boasting in their business prowess, etc., etc. But nonetheless, arrogance is arrogance. You boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. Any questions? If you know the right thing to do uh, and you don't do it, you fail to do it, it's a sin. And you say, oh, crap. <laughs> Let's face it. Come on. Right, people? The vast majority of the time, you know the right thing to do. Is that fair? Amen? Big ol' amen? Come on. Amen. Yeah, amen. Andrea, go Andrea. Amen. What's happening, Andrea? <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Right? It's big AM. amen, because let's face it. We pretty much know. We have a conscience supernaturally deposited there by God himself who says, dude, you know the right thing to do. Lady, you know the right thing to do right now. You need to run the hell out of here. Oh, did I say hell? I'm so sorry. Not. You need to get the hell out of here. You need to get out of that mode of thinking you're in. You need to get off the pity party. You need to get out of the woe is me stage of life. You need to grow up. You need to get past all of that so I can deliver you. You know the right thing to do. You do. Maybe in those corner cases, you're like, oh, man, I got duped. But come on. When a person is saved, God implants a good conscience in them, which means that if you're a believer, you now have the ability to know the right thing to do, a la James 4.17, because you have the apparatus, you have the faculties now. And he uses that good conscience to convict them, or a believer, of right and wrong, starting with themselves. And I was thinking about this. You know, there's so many offshoots of, of a good conscience. I think I, I think I taught a long series on this at one point. I believe so. Good conscience. There's so many offshoots of, and so many good things that come from having this faculty, this apparatus being given to us. A good conscience is the keystone to 
repentance as a believer and why a true believer will repent. But a professing unbeliever, someone who professes to be a believer but really isn't, they won't repent. And they have no real problem with it. It's because we have a good conscience. And we need to repent. We have the God-given ability to repent. Remember, God grants repentance according to Holy Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.25. Even that's a gift. But what would we repent from if we didn't have a good conscience convicting us of sin in the first place? What would we be repenting from? It'd be mechanical. It'd be religious, right? Like, oh, I repent, you know, blah, blah. I do this little thing. Oh, ee, Right? I'll just go through the motions like a religious fool. And uh, God says, no, I don't know you. I never knew you. No. The point is that we believers become miserable when we live in unconfessed sin. We become miserable when we live in it, unconfessed sin. That's what we noticed with David even. And that's what James described in the epistle after his name. Again, the point on the board, the source of your misery. You want the fruit of righteousness, but you refuse to actually be righteous. See how much time I got left? Okay, a little bit of time. When God implants the word of truth in your soul, and he also affords you the supernatural ability to discern the truth about your own life, practically speaking, by the way, Practically, I use the word practically because I'm talking about, you know, when you look at your own life, when you go home today, when you ponder what the Spirit's been teaching you uh, for the last few weeks, that's what I mean by practical, not theoretical. Not, oh, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Oh, yeah, I know I sin. Oh, yeah, you know, blah, blah, and then it's gone. That's the person who looks in the mirror when they're here, and then they walk away and they forget what they look like. Don't play that game. I'm talking practically. I'm talking about you spend a heck of a lot more time at home than you do here. You spend a heck of a lot of time on your own, so to speak, away from this thing, the, the shepherd, the under-shepherd that's here for your benefit. You spend a lot of time out there. So practically speaking, so he affords you the supernatural ability to discern the truth about your own life, practically speaking, as a result of imparting the word of truth into your soul. So when that happens, when you have been given this good conscience and the word, your only viable option for peace is to abide in that truth. Whatever he reveals about you. You all said in perfect agreement, we all know the right thing to do, right? All right. So if you know the right thing to do and you want to live in peace, especially for yourself, then you have to abide in the truth. You have to abide in righteousness. You see, if you want the fruit of righteousness, you have to abide in righteousness. You have to live in right. You have to do righteousness. If you want peace, you have to abide in the truth. Accept your sinfulness, confess it, repent, and pray for deliverance. Here's the secondary truth and play up here on the board. This came out on Thursday. There's no escaping the truth. The word of truth never leaves a person unchanged. That's Isaiah 55, 11. There's no neutral response. Listen, when you get hit with the word of truth like you have been this morning, you don't walk away unchanged. Trust you, me. You are changed right now. You are. You're changed. 
whether you like the idea of it or not. Now, you can change for the better or the worse. That has to do with either humility or arrogance. How do you respond to the truth when it's placed in front of you like it has been this morning? How do you respond? But the truth is, there's no escaping it. The word demands that you respond. How you respond, that's between you and the Lord. But it can tell an awful lot about where you're at. Because if you're going la, 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 la right now, you're arrogant. If you say, I have a lot to think about, maybe you're humble. That's between you and the Lord. Go to Luke 12:48 quickly. I'm going to pick a spot to close. Luke 12, verse 48. So, so much of the point on the board is amplified for believers based on Luke 12, 48. The truth never leaves a person unchanged. You will always be affected. <clears throat> Luke 12, 48. But the one who did not know, Luke 12, 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. <clears throat> and from him to him, they entrusted much. They will demand the more. In other words, to whom much is given, much is required. Up here on the board, the double-minded unrest, a true believer will be haunted by their own good conscience until they either change or God decides to remove them from earth by the sin unto death, 1 John 5.16. So welcome to the club, essentially, right? Dad says, I, I've given you an apparatus, a faculty now, supernatural, to be able to understand spiritually appraised things. And I'm going to give you my word. And when those two things collide, you're going to be completely convicted. And if you choose the way of arrogance, you're going to be miserable. And the more you grow up in Christ Jesus, the more miserable you get for the same sin, let's put it that way. Because he holds you to a higher standard the more you understand in the word of God. Does that make sense? That makes sense, right? I think you guys are all kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> so the best advice I can give you is up here on the board. Short and sweet. Don't be a hypocrite. Please don't. Please don't do this thing. Not for me. I, I, honest to God, let's end on a high note. It's really good to see you all. Honestly, amen. It's really, really good to see you. I know it's hot out. It's, you know, there's all distractions. Whatever, right? It's really good to see you. But don't be a hypocrite. Think about what the Spirit's been saying to you, right? Don't leave a message like this at the threshold on the way out. Take it for what it is. It's, it, it, this has been a grace gift. Deposit into your soul. It's not about you and I. This has nothing to do with me. He beats the tar out of me daily. I got my own problems. I'm not here to condemn you. Or, you know, I'm not even the one who convicts you. That's God, the Holy Spirit. I might say something convicting, and that's good. As a shepherd, right? That might be the rod or the staff, you know, something that moves you. But at the end of the day, don't make it about me, please. I got enough problems. Honestly, and honest to goodness, if you make it about me, you ready? You ready? You suffer. Because now you're really screwed up. Now you're making it about a man. Not only am I 
like fallible, which means I will fail you eventually. You're like, no, never, may it never be. Oh, trust me. No, why didn't anybody say that? Why was it just, it was an illusion? <laughs> Nobody's that delusional anymore. <laughs> I've known you long enough, dude. Don't make it about me. You suffer. If you make it about me, that's my point. If you make it about anybody or anything other than the Lord, you suffer. That's the point. Because you've already entered into that mode of hypocrisy, right? What are you here for? Who are you here for? Are you just doing that? You just going through the motions? You know, uh, mm, mm. I did church this week. Uh huh. I'm just going to leave it at the threshold. Back to my life. I forgot what I looked like already. James 1, right? I already forgot what I looked like. I'm just going back to my life, back to the sewer pipe. Back to the same thing over and over again, and then pray to God like a moron. Why haven't I been delivered yet? Why am I still in misery? This is what these messages are about. So, for your benefit, don't be a hypocrite. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying. Your word this morning, thank you so much for truth that continues to set us free, Father. What a blessing this has been. Father, we pray for increased faith. We pray for humility. We pray for the ability to repent with a good heart, Father. That you've, When you convict us, we're humble about it, Father. We're continuing, continuing to be sanctified uh, by you in that moment. Father, we're so grateful for everything you've done here this morning, but most of all, for loving us and for always reminding us of that very fact. We do pray that in your grace we take the things back to the privacy of our own souls, our families, and then your will be done out to a world that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.